Building a strong foundation and shaping our prayer life is a wonderful way to start off the new year, isn't it? And before we get into today's prayer from the Bible, I wonder how you would go answering this question, church. What is your prayer life like? How do you feel about answering that question? Is it an easy question to answer? Is it awkward? Does it make you feel a bit guilty? Maybe you don't really think about it all too much. No matter what your answer may look like, I feel we can all agree we could always do it a bit more prayer. But how do I pray more? Why should I pray more? I mean, the obvious answer is that there's always something to pray for, right? But instead of trying to pray more by focusing on the objects of our prayer, today, as we start this series, we will dive into the heart of prayer. And we will try to understand why we should pray from that foundation. I'm not sure what your prayer life looks like, but I think we all struggle with the core of prayer, the essence of prayer. I mean, some of you might have stopped to think about why we pray. Some of you might not have ever stopped to think. Today, we will understand the why Moses prays to God. So let's pray and ask for his help before we get into his word. Father, as we come before you and before your word, we ask that you'd be at work. Open, your, open our eyes and ears to be attentive. Open our hearts to be responsive. Allow your word to shape our lives. Amen. Well, before we understand the discourse between, uh, before we understand how the discourse between Moses and God can shape our prayer life, I think we need to understand the context of this conversation. Why is Moses trying to change God's mind? What has happened to bring us to this point in the Bible? Today's reading takes place at the resolution of this story. If we just read the start of this passage, we'll see the climax. So if you look with me to the start of 33 in verse 1, we'll read what the Lord says which prompts Moses' prayer. And we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. God is angry with Israel. I will not go with you. You are stiff-necked. I might destroy you. God was going to take them into the promised land, and now he can't stand their presence. What could Israel have done to warrant this response from God? How could they so anger the Lord? Well, a few of you key-eyed readers would have noticed that this part of the Bible takes place right after the incident of the golden calf. If you aren't aware of the story, Israel was God's chosen people. He chose them to be his holy nation in his promised land. However, for a few hundred years, this holy nation was held captives as slaves in the land of Egypt until God brought about salvation through the man of Moses. God would bring Israel out of Egypt And along the way, he would provide food for his people. He would sustain them. He would fight the battles. 
And then as they're about to enter the promised land, God calls Moses up a mountain. And it was on this mountain where God was giving Moses the laws. He was teaching him the way Israel ought to live in order to be his holy people. And as God is talking to Moses, in in chapter 32 of Exodus, we read how the Israelites interpret what's going on on that mountain. In the first verse of chapter 32, read them say this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods that will go before us. Now, I know your immediate response. It's my immediate response. How can you be so stupid? How can you so easily turn from God? And that is a fair assessment. But is it the whole assessment? Sure, we can blame them for making idols, but can you blame them for acting out? Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. You've traveled through the desert. You've now come to this place, and the God who is with you is up a mountain. In fact, he's taken the only man who was your mediator to him. And they've been gone for days. And if we keep reading that same verse, we the Israelites come to a conclusion. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I mean, he could be dead for all we know. The only things we do know is that God has called them up this mountain. And it's a mountain we can't access. And they can't access it because in Exodus 19, before Moses goes up the mountain, God tells Moses this, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. As far as Israel is concerned, their God is out of reach. They can't walk up there and check in. So what's left for them to do? I mean, do we wait? The last time we waited was 400 years in Egypt. We're currently lost in the wilderness. We need God to lead us to the promised land. Oh, God. Aaron, make us some gods. Let's do this ourselves. Let's get out of here ourselves. Israel does what any of us do when we can't see God, when we are away from his presence. We replace him with whatever is in reach. For the Israelites, it was some gold to make a statue. For us, it's whatever our comforts are. Money, status, health, relationships, security. We all struggle to reach for God in the absence of God's presence. And we reach for anything to fill the hole he lives. And we continue to grow, go, go on with our lives ignoring God. So once we pivot to God's perspective, well, we understand the anger and the hurt he feels. God has shown his heart for Israel. He has loved them in action. He has carried them out of Egypt. He has fed them in the desert. He has fought their enemies. He reveals his love for them in the way that he tells Moses how to live so he can come dwell with his people. He wants to be among them. And as he's talking to Moses, how do these people respond to God's desire to be with them? Well, they show a desire to not be with God. A desire to have the promised land without the one who promised it. A desire for the comforts life can give and not the comfort of being with the giver of life. And it's no wonder God is furious. It makes sense why he doesn't want to go with them. 
So what would you do if you were Israel? Your people have sinned against God. Moses has come down the mountain and he says, God's going to abandon us. But it's not all bad. He says, we're allowed to go into the promised land. Sick of the milk and honey. Shall we just pack our things and go? That's what the world would do, is it not? Enjoy the finer things in life. Leave God here and live your lives over here. Sometimes this way of thinking slips into our life. It shapes our prayer life. Let me leave God here. Let me try to figure out how to do this. And when it gets a bit too hard, I'll come to God. And if that doesn't work, well, I'll leave God again. And I'll go to something else. And this is where Moses does the unhuman. See, in the context where we would normally run away or reach for things ourselves, Moses' first reaction is to go towards God. In his approach to God, in his prayer, Moses reveals his desire to be with the Lord. And in doing so, he reveals the heart of prayer. And to help us understand the heart of Moses' prayer, we read about the tent of meeting in verse 7. It's sort of pre-turbinacle set up by the Israelites to meet with God. However, it seems only when Moses enters the tent do we read that God would come down. See, a pillar of cloud would come down and all the people would come out of the tents and worship God from where they were because they finally knew that God was here. It reads almost as if God would ignore anyone else who came to the tent. But when Moses would make his way, God would spring to action. There was something about Moses that God would react to. He would move toward, and not the Israelites themselves. And while Moses had this direct access to God, it's important to note that it was still a limited access. And what do I mean? Well, he, sure, he could converse with God. He could hear God's words, but it was a limited amount of words. He could only hear certain words from a certain time in a certain place. We may not hear God's words, but we have access to his full message. His words are readily available, and they are complete. Paul says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful. The Lord already has all the answers we need. In Revelation, John says that this book is complete, and he warns against anyone who would add or take away from it. Moses got to partially talk to God. We have God's complete message a message that centralizes and always points to Jesus Christ, our Savior. So with this limited access, Moses' prayer is not a direct one-to-one for our life. But the essence of prayer, the core of it, can be understood in Moses' prayer. See, it's the reason God was keen to come to the tent whenever Moses was there. It's the reason he was drawn to Moses. Moses reveals to us the why we ought to pray. And the very reason why Moses prays to God is because he wants to be with his Lord. If you read verse 12, uh, 13 from our passage today, Moses says, If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may continue, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Amidst the consequence of sin, the turmoil of punishment, the fallout of their relationship with God, Moses is here before the Lord with the desire to know him. Pleading with God to remember that this nation is your people. A nation you promised to be your holy people. A nation you promised to take to the holy land. 
Remember who you are, Lord. You are unchanging. You chose us. You know us. So please stay with us. That's a pretty outstanding request to make to God. Especially after your people just sinned against him. After he chose not to demolish you all, but he chose to send you off. How is God going to respond to Moses? Well, we read in verse 14. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. What? Has God changed his mind? No. God has always revealed that he is someone who goes towards those who seek him. He is pleased with those who seek him. He is slow. He is quick to show mercy. Moses does not change God's mind. Instead, he shows who God truly is. Moses cares not for the land. He doesn't care if Israel make it there or not. He cares only if his God is there with them. He knows the rich land flowing with milk and honey will be empty and worthless without his God. He cannot fathom the idea of enjoying life without the creator of life. And God sees Moses' heart and responds the only way he knows how. He too wishes Moses would be in his presence. Moses has done it. Or so you would think. Instead of this first request on um, a success, it's not enough for Moses. See, it's one thing for Moses to know the Lord. It's one thing for Moses to be with God. But it's another thing for God's presence to be with the whole of Israel, to be with Moses' people. So Moses doubles down. If your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. He replies to God. Us, plural. Not just me, Moses, your servant, but all of Israel. He says, how will anyone know we are your people if you are not there with us? What will distinguish us from all the other people on the face of the earth? How can we be your holy people, God, without you, the holy one? And basically, Moses, what are you thinking? You've got more than you deserve. God is angry with Israel. He said he will go with you. Take God, be happy, leave Israel. I mean, can you imagine the confidence or cockiness of a person who's just made two requests of God and says the first one's not good enough? But what we may mistake as confidence is actually Moses' servant leadership. See, he's a man who not just cares for himself. He doesn't just care for his relationship with God, but he cares for his people. He cares for their relationship with God. And we read that God responds in verse 17. I will do everything you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses' desire to know the Lord is a desire for all to know the Lord. He knows the outcome of those who do not know God. He himself is a person who knows the Lord better than anyone else. And yet that isn't enough for him. He wants to continue to grow. He knows there is no stopping in knowing the Lord. You can always learn, and continue to find favor with God. And Moses wants the same for his people. He wants the same desire for them. He is a servant leader. And through my seven years at APC, three years being on the staff team, I've seen these types of leaders. People who not only desire God for themselves, but people who desire for you, our church, to know God. People who've worked hard, sacrificed, prayed and pleaded with God for you to know him as he knows you. 
Let's give thanks for these servant-hearted leaders we have at APC. Ask God to keep growing leaders like this in our church. But also yearn for this yourself. If you truly long to be with God, what do you think those around you are missing out on? If you truly understand how life can be complete when you are face-to-face with the living God, wouldn't you want the same for your family, your friends, your fellow church believers? How about your enemies, or worse, your neighbors? Do you desire to be with God? Because when a person so longly yearns for God, well, God responds. Read what he says to Moses' heart. I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. That doesn't sound like a God who has left his people. Instead, it is intimate. It's relational. God responds to the desire to know him. You don't have to completely understand him. You don't need to know all his names. You don't need a dictionary full of big words to describe him. You just have to long for him, to want to know him. And once you want to know God, he responds by wholly knowing you. I think of my mom's family back home in Papua New Guinea with this analogy. See, when I was a boy, I grew up not really knowing my mom's side of the family. So I'd have to work on my ability to relate to them as a family. But whenever I'd go over to visit them in the village, I'd be embraced. As I'm trying to reach for names, trying to redraw my family tree, which auntie is that? Whose child is this? Which second cousin is that? Whose pig am I holding? <laughs> As I'm really trying to figure out what's going on, I realized I'm being cried for, I'm being hugged, I'm being fed. What seems like a small, insignificant failure of a step from my end is the world to my family, and they respond. I think that's how God responds. He meets our small desire to know him by knowing us perfectly. See, Moses is the leader who knows this God. In fact, he knows him a bit too well, because he keeps pushing for more, doesn't he? I don't know if Moses is a gambling man, but if he was, he wouldn't know when to fold. Because after making some reasonable requests, he keeps pushing for more. He then proceeds to make this bold statement, doesn't he? In verse 18, now show me your glory. Hello? What? Has Moses forgot who he's talking to? Has entitlement gone to his head? Is he getting a bit over-friendly with God? Surely this is the end of Moses. Goodbye. Oh, wait. God has agreed yet again. I mean, sure, there are a few caveats, but God has said yes to this man. I mean, why would God so easily agree? They both know what will happen if anyone were to lay their eyes on the Lord. See what the Lord says in the, verse, in the end of 20. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. No one can be in the presence of God. Sin has compromised our righteousness. We are so unright as humans that we cannot be in his presence. The only people who perfectly laid their eyes on the Lord was Adam and Eve before sin. We saw the immediate effect of that after. They hid from the Lord. God sent them away from his presence. They were announced dead. And yet Moses, this mere human, wants to see the glory of God despite the outcome. Why is his prayer to see the glory of God? 
Well, the reason comes back to the heart of Moses' prayer, the love he has for the Lord. He so loves the Lord, he wants to see God in all his brilliance. Talking to God is not enough. If one I could squeeze a glimpse at your back, I, I so want to see you, Lord, that I pray you would not leave me, not leave my people. Instead, show me your glory. What a bewildering prayer. I would never think to talk to God in this way. And what's more bizarre is God's response. He says, yes, this is what God wants. He is pleased when people want to see him, when they want to know him, when they want to be with him. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Think of how much God gave to be with Israel. Think of how much he's given to be with us. We celebrated it on Monday. God begotten his only son, given up godhood to become a boy born in a manger, growing a life as a human, suffering, getting sick, eventually dying on a cross for our sake. That was the price he paid for, our, for his desire to be with us. And then when he rose back up, when he was with the Father, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit. That is how much he loves us. He wants to be with us now. And his joy is complete when we merely long for him. We don't even have to be with him perfectly. We just have to want to be with him. How imperfect and lackluster does our side of the relationship feel? But it makes sense, doesn't it? We can't do enough. We can never work enough. We can never do enough good deeds. We can never sin less. Instead, just a desire to accept his presence is enough for God. He doesn't want a perfect response. He just wants a response. He wants for us to move towards him. Moses was in a cleft hidden from God. He couldn't perfectly be with God, and yet that was enough for God to show him his glory. And as he showed him his glory, he says this in verse 19. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. To know God is to be in the presence of his glory. And we know the Lord. We read his word. And what's our natural response when you read his goodness, when you read of his glory? Well, we glorify, we praise, we sing, we tell others, we give thanks. When we are in the presence of God, we glorify because we are made complete. The longing has been met. So why don't we come to him more often? Do we take every opportunity to talk to God? Do we pray like Moses when we do? Do we come before him with the longing to be with him? Or are we like the Israelites? Do we let our prayers be shaped by the world around us? I think we all want to be with God. We strive to be. But our prayer life falls into one of four different styles. The guilty prayer, the anxious prayer, the needy prayer, or the good old Christian prayer. See, maybe you're a guilty prayer. Someone who prays because you realize you haven't prayed quite as much as you should recently, or because, well, you feel guilty, you've done something wrong, you need to come to God. Maybe you're the anxious prayer. Someone who prays because life is getting a bit too concerning. There's been a few too many natural disasters on the news. Your bills are increasing. 
you will have to move to a different church. Maybe you are the needy prayer. You are now in need of help. You've got to find a job. You need help with schoolwork. Your health is taking a dive. Problems are too big for you to solve. Maybe the sermon you were meant to finish a few days ago isn't done yet. You need divine help. Simply put, you might be the Christian prayer. Maybe you pray because it's something well, all Christians do. You're meant to do it before you eat, when you read the Bible, when you're at church. It's just something we do. Basketballers learn how to dribble and shoot. We learn how to pray and read the Bible. It's just what we do. And these types of prayers are not necessarily bad. I mean, they help us turn to God. But without a solid foundation, these prayers can be empty. Without the heart, they miss the point of prayer. See, they can be like entering the promised land without the one who promised it. Moses' prayer helps us step out of this routine of prayer. It helps us recenter ourselves. It brings us to the heart of prayer. We go from reactive praying to active praying. So we ought to ask ourselves, why do we pray? Why should I even turn to God in the first place? And the reasons might be good, right? Because we know he cares. We know he has the power. We know it's good to turn to him. Moses helps us dig a little deeper. See, the why we pray to God is because it's a chance to come before him. An opportunity to catch a glimpse at he who made us. And this solid foundation of prayer is what turns those ordinary prayers into godly prayers. For example, let's say you're a bit anxious at the moment. Someone close to you has a health problem. So you asked, so you go to God and you you know he is someone has the power to heal. And you pray to him. Ask him that he would take care of this person's health. Be with the doctors, be with the family. It's a lovely prayer. But can you notice what's missing? Does that prayer feel empty to you? Let's view now let's view prayer from God's uh, from Moses' perspective. So you come before God. Because you know him. You know he's just as loving and caring as he is powerful. You come to him because he's the embodiment of peace. You come to him because you know he wants you to. You come to him because he so knows you. He is aware of all the emotions you feel. He knows the words you can't articulate. And you pray the exact same prayer. But since you so know God, you know he is unchanging. You are reminded of his promise that one day all suffering would come to an end. So no matter what the outcome is, you trust that God is good. You come before God, not just because he's powerful, but because he is beautiful and awesome to you. And church, this is the heart of Moses' prayer. Remember, he doesn't care if he makes it to the promised land or not. He cares about being in the presence of the God that sent him there, the God who loves him. And if, you were the, if you're someone who doesn't quite get the grip of prayer, please understand, the essence of prayer is to be in the presence of the one you're praying to. To be good at praying, you must merely want to go to God. The reason you should pray is not only because you need him to respond, but because he's the only person you want to turn to. When something happens, we don't send our prayers into the universe and we hope for a better outcome. 
Instead, we go to the God who is all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful. And we are met by a father who embraces us as a child. Do you want to be in the presence of God? And if so, here lies the beauty of Jesus as our Lord. See, Moses shapes our foundation of prayer. Jesus perfects it. As we look to Jesus, we see the glory of God, perfect and holy. As we look to Jesus, we see how much God desired us. He so desired us that he begot his only son. Jesus desired us that he would choose to die on a cross for our sake. God desired us so much that he left us his word and his spirit, which all point to Christ. As we look to Jesus, we see him currently at work. For it's through him we pray. He takes our prayers to the Father. And when we fail to pray, well, he is interceding on our behalf, praying for us. Knowing how much God has done. Knowing what the Spirit is at work doing right now. Knowing what Jesus is doing. How will you approach prayer this year? Will you build your prayer life on the foundation Moses leaves us? When you next pray, will you be praying to God because he is God? Vague, out there, out of reach. Are you hoping he will hear? Or will you pray to him because he is your God? The God who knows your name. Accessible and guaranteed access through Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Our Father, we come before you, come before your presence through the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the work you did to achieve our righteousness. Our righteousness which allows us to be before you now and for eternity. Father, we know how grand you are, how insignificant we are. And we are grateful that you desire to be with us. Grow in us the desire to be with you. Shape our prayers to be built on the foundation of wanting to be before you. Help us to make the most of every opportunity to be in your presence as we eagerly pray and await the kingdom come. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.